This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to It's Canon Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. I'm back today again. I have uh, Todd Wilbur, who is uh, going to be teaching again for us this year at HITS. Last year, he uh, jumped in kind of the last second, and, and uh, we had a instructor who canceled. Todd jumped in, did a great class. It was well-received. This year, he's uh, scheduled. He's going to do two different uh, classes, the same, two different times, the same class. It's called uh, How Do People Build Bombs? And he's basically, it's a class for bomb dog handlers, to kind of explain, you know, some of the things to look for and, and the knowledge, which I think is a little bit lacking sometimes in the bomb dog training. We spend a lot of time uh, training dogs and maybe doing some stuff with handlers, but we don't really talk a lot about exactly how, you know, the bombs are built and what to look for. Not that we're going to be bomb techs, but uh, I think it. I think there's some value there. I know that once I kind of learned how bombs were built, I knew maybe what to look for as far as like evidence if I was at a post-blast scene. So, uh, Todd's going to discuss that a lot, but uh, without further ado, uh, Todd, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, sir. <clears throat> Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up uh, getting into this business? Uh, it was quite by accident uh, all the way around. I was in the Army, and uh, after the end of my first enlistment, I looked around and wanted to see what else was was out there, and somebody said, uh, there's this thing called EOD. It's the Army Bomb Disposal. And uh, I thought that sounded kind of cool, work with explosives. So I went off and did that. And then later on, somebody said, hey, you know, you're pretty fit. Um, there's this group called Delta Force, and they do recruiting every once in a while. And they may want to take a look at you because you can do well on your PT tests and so forth. I kind of laughed and said, you know, that's just a movie. That's not real. Yeah. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, accepted as a, as a member and then uh, later on went to work for the Department of Energy and did uh, original research on explosives. Then uh, later, uh, somebody said, "Hey, can you do some classes on on bombs and explosives for dog people?" And then that kind of got got me into this world. So a good chunk of your military time was playing with bombs and explosives. I take it playing with bombs and explosives. And um, in Afghanistan, I did scummy contract work for State Department and uh, worked on hundreds of IEDs and tens of thousands of pounds of uh, homemade explosives yeah. really helped. And then uh, with that information, I went to New Mexico Tech, where I'm an adjunct professor, and uh, did original research on explosives with some grad students. And um, they earned uh, about a dozen graduate degrees from the research that we did. Oh, well. And what part of the country are you living in now? We live in uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia. So there's obviously a lot of government stuff going on there in that area, I think. Yeah, lots of government stuff. Quantico's nearby. Yeah. And your business right now, um, are you, kind of explain a little bit your overall business. Uh, my wife and I started a company called Precision Explosives and uh, essentially taken requests from the community to solve problems. So somebody asked, uh, can you teach a class? So we developed some classes. Uh, can we buy explosives from you? So we got an explosives license and figured all that out. And then somebody asked, can you build a non-detonable training for explosives? And we did that. And then they followed on with uh, narcotics. So 
basically what we do is uh, we listen to the community. And when they say that there's uh, an area that needs a, a solution, then we try to solve that problem. And so most of your stuff is basically providing the training aids, not as much providing the dog training, right? Right. So I know my lane. My lane is explosives and uh, chemistry and explosives research. I'm not a dog handler. I'm not a dog trainer. We've seen thousands of dogs. Uh, so we recognize some common things, but I'll never tell anybody anything about dog behavior or how to handle a dog. Um, we know lots of really smart people that can do yeah. that. <laughs> Well, that's good. I think sometimes people become trying to be the jack of all trades, and and then you know maybe uh, you end up getting out of your lane. So I appreciate, you know, that you're you're staying doing doing a valuable service on on the side of the uh, providing training aids. Which I, there's obviously some companies that are doing it, but at the end of the show, we're going to talk a little bit more about your training aids and stuff because I think there's some really cool stuff you guys are doing. But let's go ahead and get into uh, the class that you're going to teach. Um, how did you come up with a class called How Do People Build Bombs and uh, what's the, the overall goal of the class? So uh, we start off kind of in keeping with uh, what you just mentioned about uh, products. We say from the very outset that this is not a product pitch. It's not an infomercial. Everything we talk about is is fully based on uh, science <clears throat> and on uh, my experiences in working on bombs. And so the intent is to... Um, to share experiences and uh, technical information with handlers that can help them immediately. Uh, I don't feel like any training or presentation should just be something you sit through and then figure out, well, how do I process that, process that information to make it useful? So we try to uh, provide some, you know, kernels of, of knowledge about uh, or that will immediately change how you operate and make you safer. And so the biggest question or the most common question I get is, what is it going to look like? What, what am I looking for? Um, I heard that downrange with soldiers, yeah. working security, uh, dog handlers. What am I looking for? How do I know what my, what my dog found, or has found what we're, we're supposed to find? And so we go through that. We go through uh, different types of homemade explosive mixtures that would surprise a lot of people. Like, for example, uh, potassium chlorate, which is found in match it. Um, so I a lot of people are surprised when I say you make a bomb out of potassium chlorate and corn oil or potassium chlorate and cumin spice. Um, <clears throat> and we demonstrate that, but the, the, the point is that they should understand um, that there are these, these mixtures that can be made that are actual explosives. If dog alerts to it, your dog is not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, take note of, of what you're seeing and be able to pass that on. So it's it's educating them also as an observer to take note of key ID features that they can they can pass along after their dog alerts. Uh, so we show the components of bombs, the, the common components, um, different types of homemade explosives, and uh, dig deep into uh, what what are necessary odors for you to be as effective as possible. So and you, by that you mean like what are the common odors that we're finding here in the U.S. and, and abroad? And abroad, uh, we talk about the trends here in, in the United States, but we also talk about trends that are transnational. And as we know, oftentimes the transnational threats actually United States. So we want people to be prepared. And with that, what if if uh, somebody said you know I have, they only give me the minimum amount of training time, so I try to do the most important odors you know in my box here uh, obviously you know over time we want to make sure we expose our dogs to all the odors but 
if you were running a dog in this in the U.S. right now t- today, what would be you know the top four or five odors you'd want to know that your dog was very very proficient on? So we uh, we address that also in the class, and we look at the U.S. Bomb Data Center report. In fact, I've looked at the Bomb Data Center reports for the last like twenty years. For the most part, they really haven't changed a whole lot. There are a couple of little anomalies, but uh, essentially in the United States. If your dog knows ammonium nitrate, potassium chlorate, um, and gunpowder, powder, and, and black powder, um, uh, and potassium chlorate, your dog is pretty well covered for about anything in the United States. People like to make bombs out of things like tannerite, <clears throat> that's ammonium nitrate based, ANFO is a, is a thing. Um, people like to make pipe bombs. Pipe bombs are very popular in the yeah. United States as a pressure cookers and those usually have things like gunpowders or, or fireworks in them. So, um, notice I didn't mention C4. C4 hasn't been used in a terrorist attack in the United States since 1972. Um, is it something you need to run your dog on. Sure. Yeah. Uh, definitely run your dog on RDX, PETN, TNT, and nitroglycerin. But in the United States, the, the, the most prevalent homemade explosives or explosives actually used in bombings, which is what we focus on, not, yeah. The, seizures are, are stolen stuff and that kind of thing but it's those uh propellants and oxidizers so even even if we're talking about maybe like i live in colorado so it's a, a mining community um, i always figure there's pit places that people could steal dynamite for the mines or something like that would you would you make it regional or would you still say not even to worry as much about that as as what you I- I wouldn't worry about that as much. I mean, sure, there's theft from uh, quarries and and mining locations, but um, and there there's stuff that gets lost or misplaced. Yeah, but it's just not used that often in a in a device. And I I think part of that could be that people fear uh, getting caught trying to acquire it, or yeah. that you know it's traceable and all those things are are true, of course. But it's a whole lot easier to kind of fly under the radar and. Uh, go get ammonium nitrate or potassium chlorate and these other things and you know do your thing so with the class some of your goal would be if i would say on a bomb sweep of you know maybe a search warrant or something for whatever reason it's to kind of educate me to know that if i see you know four things of say stump remover in the study then that would be something that would be unusual so you're, you're kind of just kind of given handlers an idea of what to look for besides even even a, the dog maybe the dog alerts on that maybe he doesn't for whatever reason but at least you're giving them ideas of, of what to look for i assume it, these are the chemicals that can be used um these are the components um so for example all bombs whether they're a hand grenade or a nuclear weapon have four main components and we show people what those components would look like and in combination with uh, some chemicals, some very key chemicals that your dog has already imprinted on, then uh, you can kind of put things together and say, you know, it looks like this guy is building something or, oh my gosh, I found something and it looks like it's completed. Yeah. And those have two, you know, different responses. And when you're, when you go over some of these things and you talk, especially like the ammonium nitrate or some of the, the, the homemade bomb stuff, what is your theory that you've come up with, you know, from seeing so many dogs and being on the other side of it? Do you like going out and buying some of the things, like I just mentioned, stump remover? Would you recommend exposing your dogs to stump remover, or should you keep continuously using the 
the main ingredient and you know let them let them generalize you know the that, over-the-counter products that's a great question what we focused on is uh, is the key constituent the whatever that common denominator yeah. so for example i um um ammonium nitrate there are different forms of ammonium nitrate and so i would say you know run your dog on different different sources of, of ammonium nitrate um same thing with potassium chlorate um and potassium nitrate and the reason why we, uh, potassium nitrate is not a common odor that hear people talk about but the reason why we we mention it is it's in all black powders yeah so uh, instead of going out and investing in you know a big cabinet full of gunpowder get the key components to gunpowder yeah. or the ones that are most representative of the key elements, like for example, nitroglycerin or DNT. So, uh, sure. Run your dog on, on uh, stump remover that, that has potassium nitrate in it, but run your dog first, imprint your dog first on potassium nitrate. Yeah. And then for all those different things that have more, uh, complex in the picture. Yeah. And when we're talking about the, the components of, of bombs when they're building them, if you were in a situation where you were sweeping somewhere and maybe you had a, you know, like I said, maybe a search warrant or something, you had suspicious activity was there, but your dog's not working any of the odors or whatever, what are some of the material things you're going to be looking for, batteries or those types of things? Are there some some things that would be really stand out to you from what you saw, you know, overseas? So uh, batteries are pretty common, um, but the hardest part to building a homemade bomb is making the initiator. Um, switches, you can have an infinite number of different types of switches from, uh, egg timers to, um, switches that you make out of vibratory switches. You make out of springs and nails. I mean, it, that's, that, that's an endless yeah. list. Yeah. Um, but getting down to the blasting cap is the hardest part or some way of initiating it like an electric match. Uh-huh. And I think that if, uh, if, if responders understood you know, to, to focus in on that part of it. If you have, if you, you, it all has to be kind of a situational mosaic. You have to take in the totality of what you're looking at. Uh, is this in context with where it is in the house? Um, so if you saw somebody who had hundreds of boxes of matches in their kitchen, why would you do that? Well, as a, as a bomb guy, I would say this person is trying to harvest the potassium chlorate off of those matches using warm water. Um, but you know, a bunch of boxes in the garage that yeah. might not be as suspicious. Yeah. Uh, if somebody in July has Christmas tree lights out, why? Well, I can build a, a hot yeah. wire uh, blasting cap from that. So I think that if you look at things as, uh, you know, does this fit in with a key component to making a bomb? And that helps. That helps to. Uh, to, to better understand what environment you're really in. Is this a bomb maker's house? Or is this the guy that's doing reloading? Is this a guy that, you know, is yeah. an amateur amateur chemist or power technician? What, what are they doing? And am I safe to say, you know, from looking at, you know, the bomb reports and stuff uh, um, that they put out and you, I always read the investigation. I think I'm fairly safe to say that most of these guys seem to always have an area of their house where they play with this stuff. So they try to figure out, the best initiator. So when you see a, a workbench with, like you say, Christmas tree lights that are all cut up and little weird switches and stuff, it's not your imagination. The guy's not into model railroads. He's he's playing with trying to figure out the, the switches and, and that. It seems like they always have an area where they kind of play with that. Is that kind of what you see also? 
Uh, it, it is, and sometimes people try to stash things. Um, in Afghanistan, we did a raid on a bomb maker's house, and he had things hidden in different locations. Some of it was buried in his backyard. Some of it was in his house. So sometimes they were all put together. Uh, sometimes they're kind of, you know, I guess it depends on what phase of their operation. Yeah. That they're... And when you were doing those types of uh, uh, raids in Afghanistan, I assume you had dogs with you? We did not. We had to find everything either with a metal detector or uh, or by hand. Dogs would have been great. Yeah. <laughs> I thought they were a little more prevalent with, with a lot of the... the well, we were, with, we were working with the... Uh, the Afghans and uh, their national security forces, and they're not big fans of dogs in the first place. Yeah. And, uh, being scummy State Department contractors, <laughs> we that's amazing. So, um, moving on, if if uh, you know, we're kind of talking about doing a, a search warrant or something. What about at a like a post blast scene, which you know that that's not uh, an uncommon thing, I would think. You know, a lot of places, if, you know, like we had one here where someone had blown up a mailbox with a pipe bomb and then they had the dogs kind of run all the areas around it just to make sure there wasn't a secondary. So if you're a dog handler and you haven't been through any of these classes and you're in that, that post-blast scene, um, what things would you, besides, you know, obviously you're searching searching for, you know, anything that your dog is going to alert on, but what other things should the handlers be looking for you know, as they're walking around in that area. So uh, obviously they want to uh, uh, preserve evidence, but uh, I'm a big uh, advocate for having a spotter. So while you're working the dog, have somebody else looking out in front of you so that you don't accidentally sure. step on or your dog doesn't get into something that they shouldn't. When uh, when bombs explode, the if there's any type of um, metal involved, like you've mentioned a pipe bomb, that metal is really sharp, like razor sharp, which can obviously hurt dogs, but hurt humans as well. Um, and also sometimes bombs don't completely detonate. So your dog may be finding some uh, residue from smokeless powder, or gunpowder that was in that pipe. Uh, could be that there is a secondary. And uh, what we've seen that works really well for doing a, a post-blast search for secondaries is starting at the blast seat. Start your dog at the at the area where the, the detonation occurred. Okay. And what's happening is you're resetting the dog, you're recalibrating the dog for background and then go search because then the next thing that has the highest um, potential target odor to it is going to be the next device or some material that wasn't used to get the idea. So kind of get them used to the idea that there's a lot of, of odor in this area, but we're going to look for a larger source of odor. Right. Start in the place where it it is the strongest and then work your way out. And a lot of people have heard other techniques where people say, well, we're going to quarter it off or work around the perimeter. And, you know, all those things are kind of um, your tactics, techniques and procedures based. And yeah. so if, that, if that's what works for you, do that. But this is a different technique that we've seen that works well. Um, it's the only time I'll talk about dog behavior. And, and uh, actually a really good dog guy introduced us to it. And that was, and it makes sense, if you start at the place where the, the highest uh, residue, then the dog gets a chance to reset to what sure. the, it Yeah, I think that's a, I, and that's actually a point I had never thought of, but it, it makes sense because I, I would picture, 
you know, many of the dogs, if you're out on the perimeter of that, are going to be trying to work towards the, the blast site because that's where the, the odor is going to be and they want to get paid over there. So I think right. if you get that out of the way and then start working away from it, that actually mm-hmm. makes sense. Uh, so that's, that's it's, a, un, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's um, wouldn't ever happen, but oftentimes people don't necessarily put two bombs in the same location. So if you're starting in that place, you kind of know, okay, there's whatever blew up is already blown up. Yeah. Um, when you start with the blast seat, now you're looking for the next thing. And I think also I'd like to touch on about, you know, how people build bombs. Um, obviously safety when you're a bomb dog handler is different than when you're, I mean, it's a little bit different. Drug dog handlers have some of their own issues and patrol dog handlers obviously have some and bomb dogs. But I know like, uh, for instance, uh, when I first started being a bomb dog handler, um, one of the big things was you could never turn a light switch on. And then talking to people, it was like, you know, I've never heard of one single time where they've wired a bomb into a light switch. So with that, um, can you give me some just kind of practical advice about do's and don'ts? You know, should you should you not have a radio on? Should you not have your cell phone in there? What If you were doing, you know, seeing what, all the stuff you've seen, if you had a leash in your hand, how would you approach some of the safety things, including, you know, your search pattern and stuff? So, well, I don't know that I can necessarily speak to search pattern because that's a... Well, and I guess what I'm saying is, would you would you search straight down one long hallway or would you do each room as you come to it? Those types of things, thinking more like for the bomb techs when you need to alert them to, to what you had found. So I, w- I wouldn't leave anything unclear behind me. Yeah. Would be th- and I'm, I'm basing this not on being a, anything related to dogs, yeah. but in, you know, basic uh, security and, and searches. Sure. So uh, as a bomb tech, sometimes I'm the dog. I have to go find it. I'm not sniffing it out, but yeah. I'm looking for And just some general um, safety tips when when you, you were told don't ever turn on the light, um, it's unlikely somebody's going to wire it into the, the light. However, the device itself could be light sensitive. Okay. It could be completely independent of any electrical wiring, but um, that's why we say for bomb techs, for canine, for uh, security cover guys, uh, whomever, don't change the environment. If the lights are off, leave them off. If the lights are on, leave them on. Um, uh, check doors and seams as best you can before you open it, and that's a great use of, of a dog. Um, and try to pie things off and, and get a look at the room prior to walking into it and you know again using your dog that that would really help but one of the things that that strikes me is we want dogs to be um, less concerned about their environment in terms of being able to get up on top of things and so forth but i've also seen a lot of dogs come in contact with things that they're searching and if i could give any counsel on that i would say please try to keep your dog from coming in contact with something that could be a bomb because not only can it be light activated, it can um, activated yeah. by vibration or by contact. Or if you knock that back over, then that could be all it takes. Sure. Sure. And um, on that same note, when you're talking about searching, you know, I think we'd mentioned patterns. I always like to kind of think about, you know, if I need to get out of here, what's, which way am I going to leave and all that? For the, the when you're when you're trying to work with a bomb tech, say if for some reason you're doing a search, you have a spotter but not a bomb tech. 
what would you what advice would you give for that team you know they come across something uh the dog alerts um what should what would you say then they should be doing uh, you know take a picture of it and get the hell out of there mark it do you know, what what would you advise them to do before the bomb techs get there so you you answer you ask the um the uh before you ask about things like radios and so forth taking a picture really helps just please don't use a flash because okay. again the things can be uh, light-rated. In terms of keying radios, your radio, in when it's receiving, only emits a little bit of electromagnetic radiation. When you key that mic, that's a whole different thing. Uh, and there have been instances where people have keyed a uh, you know walkie-talkie type radio, and it has set off blasting caps. If that blasting cap's in a bomb, then that's a bad day. Yeah. Um, cell phones are not as much of a hazard just because of the frequency that they operate in. But uh, I would not stand over the top of something that your dog just sat on and then, you know, key up any electronics. But taking a picture really helps. Um, trying to isolate exactly what it, what the item is. So, you know, if you have, again, you're going to that, that workshop and there may be odor everywhere, but if you can isolate one, you know, that one thing that your dog is really interested in, that helps to key the bomb tech in on what they're going to have to go to work on. Um, obviously, clearing things around wherever it is your your dog set helps as well because you could be walking into an ambush where somebody sets something up that looks really obvious and then you walk straight to it yeah. and then something happens. So clearing the, the environment, giving them a pathway in, being able to, to mark it. Um, I know some folks use, you know, it's either some type of tape, yeah, uh, or chem lights work really well. It doesn't, you don't have to activate the chem light. You can just throw the chem light down, but some way to mark it and, um, show a cleared path are, are very helpful things for the bomb tech. And I guess if in that situation, um, when your dog is either working very hard, I mean, a lot of these things, I wouldn't even let my dog go to final once I've got that change of behavior and clearly he's working something. I'm going to get him at least away from, say, if, you know, you bench like a workbench or something like that. I'm going to get sure. away from that. I, I would think most of the time, once I'm in that, you know, I'm there for a search warrant. They've got reason, you know, I know it's a dangerous dude. And now he's at this workbench. He starts working it. Even if I haven't necessarily isolated exactly what it is, would you recommend that at that point I just unass out of there and then start working with the, the team and make the, the techs and maybe see if they need me to come back up and help them? But I guess my point is, is as a dog handler, we don't want to try and then become the diagnostic end of this and, and try and isolate right. too much. Exactly. So something that you know, definitely want to think about out of there, uh, checking any other rooms that they may have to go by or any anything that could be a uh, you know concealing a hazard that they would have to go by also if you did open a door leave it open if you anything you had to any obstacles you had to clear like opening things or moving things out of the way make sure that path is still clear because probably the first approach is going to be with a robot and opening doors with robots is, yeah. is kind of a so just think about leaving that path clear, knowing that, you know, it's not going to be got a guy in a bomb suit most likely to make the first approach. That's, that's a good point. I think these are all like just good general things. Like I said, I think we talk a lot about uh, the training the dog and imprinting the dog and all those things. But I think operationally sometimes, uh, you know, I was very fortunate that we were part of our bomb squad and our bomb squad was 
very heavily invested in our canine side of things. So they worked with us a lot and kind of taught us a lot of things. And we worked hand in hand very, very much with them. But I think some agencies, maybe they have like a regional bomb squad and don't get to spend as much time with them. So first thing I'd say is, you know, reach out to everybody, every part, every inch of the country has a bomb squad covering it. Reach out, talk to your, whoever's covering your bomb squad, uh, work with them a little bit, do some scenario stuff, see what they want, you know, because most of them, most bomb guys are all on the same page since they're trained the same. But I would say, you know, work with them, figure out your local regional areas, what they want, how you can work with them. And, and you know, just to start building that, that partnership. Do you see a lot of that as you're training? Are you seeing more, um, like I said, kind of teams working together with canines on the, the bomb techs? Or is it still kind of one guy does one thing and one guy does another? I think that there's a, a strong desire for all the kind of specialty elements, canine, bomb squad, SWAT, all those all those folks want to work together. What the, the feedback that we're getting is that the the long pole in the tent is everybody's limited on training time. Yeah. The bomb guy gets sixteen hours a month, the dog guy gets sixteen hours a month, the SWAT guys, you know, they may get days a month, but they all have limited amount of time to do, do required training. And so the optional training sometimes gets pushed away. Yeah. But I think that the whole community definitely benefits with more integration between each of those elements. And I kind of look at, I kind of look at it as a response continuum in that, you know, the, the, the dog guy is, is going to go find the ambush and the bomb guy is going to go walk into the, uh, black guys need to provide cover for this. Yeah. It, it all builds on itself and uh, the better that they can seamlessly integrate from each phase of that of that operation, uh, whether it be, hey, we've, we, you know, you're you're executing a search warrant, and we're going to run the dog, and the bomb guys are on standby, and and all that kind of good stuff, or you know, holy shit, we just did a random sweep and we found something. Now what do we do? What's yeah. the next? And so if you haven't practiced that, then you know you're you're going to potentially waste time and second guess yourself and that sort of thing. Uh, I think that canine guys should definitely uh, don't be hesitant in calling the bomb guy because well he he's got he's probably got another job but that's the thing that he's he's waiting for they're waiting for that call yeah so, exactly they, they like what they do and for people who listen to this podcast a lot especially when I talk about um, patrol dog stuff I emphasize and when I teach classes. Scenario-based training, scenario-based training. We don't do enough scenario-based training and decision-making training. And what you were just talking about is the exact same thing. And I would think that, you know, I know that, like you say, training time's limited. But if I've ran my dog on the same odors and the same group, and I do that all the time, and my dog's not having any issues with, you know, the, his final response or searching patterns, and he's working pretty good, then I can take a training day very easily and do an entire scenario where maybe my dog's not even going to be exposed to any odors that day, but I just have to walk through and make some decisions with the team and have a SWAT guys around him and have the bomb squad there and have a robot working around him. And, you know, there's a lot of valuable training that doesn't mean your dog sniffs something, sits, and gets a toy in his mouth, where I think we we sometimes only work, and on same with the bomb squad. I mean, if you've practiced driving your robot up and down stairs and, and done all those things, then maybe sometime it needs to be, a scenario based training where you're, you know, somebody that, that has set up the entire scenario 
where all the teams have to work together through it. That's still valuable training, even though, you know, you're not doing the same thing you do on every training day. And, and I just see kind of guys getting in a rut thinking I have to run my dog on odors every single training day to make it training. And I, I imagine you probably see the same thing. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Scenario-based training certainly helps to kind of help you figure out what's next. Um, and sometimes having worked in the, uh, emergency response community for a while it's sometimes it's hard to figure out when to say it's over yeah you know you say they we've we've done everything that can be done we found all the bombs that can be found we found all the components that can be found when do we sat when are we satisfied and we can say we can clear the scene yeah and i think if that's that scenario based training then everything is leading to um you know what do we do next and then how do we terminate yeah that's a that's a great point, you know, and and I think it also is a good you know, especially on the dog side of things, it's a good time to to do those decision making things where this is just no longer a, a bomb dog search, you know. We're gonna need to maybe I'll, I'm gonna be in the area and help if I'm asked for it, but I need to to get out of here and let the the bomb techs go to work now. And I think sometimes again, I think um, I see and when I set up scenarios, sometimes I see guys kind of get into the diagnostic part of it. You know, if you see something that looks like a device, I'm not going to run my dog on it. It, it, it looks like a device, I'm, I'm done. Well, I, I, one of the things I stressed in the, in the class is, you know, the, the proper use of, of canine, not from not that I'm from a handler perspective, but from a bomb guy perspective. Sure. You know, if something is, if something is simply uh, uh, unattended, is that a good use of canine? Well, it's not, it's not been deemed suspicious. Yeah. So, We'll see if that's a threat or somebody abandoned something has been left there for a long time. Is that a good use of, of canine? Yeah, sure. Let's, let's figure out uh, what that is and if a, a threat is present. But if something's already deemed suspicious, um, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but the bomb guy doesn't care if your dog's sad or not. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, again, not having the opportunity for some of the bomb dog handlers, not having the opportunity to work with bomb squads, they don't, They don't. I think they don't see that. Or... They're thinking, well, I'm going to bother the bomb squad for that. But it's no more than we we like to search. They like to do their stuff. So, you know, call your bomb squad. Call them a lot. They, they want the calls. They want the work. So, And ask questions. Hey, my, my dog uh, shared a change to this. Uh, and talk to your bomb guys. Could this be bomb-making materials? Or is there something similar? They, you know, that's good. Those are good questions to ask them. And it gets them thinking kind of outside just the device aspect of it like what is in what is in the explosive what is in these fuel oxidizer mixtures that that they should be aware of in other words um you know letting you know people are making devices this way using this particular type of material is your dog imprinted on this and uh then do some scenario-based training and and see if your dog is is going to alert to that yeah that's an excellent point so I'd like to take a few minutes too and talk about uh, your products. I know you have some training products, and again, that you know we don't really do infomercials here, but this is a your product is a new product, uh, well, relatively new that some of the our handlers probably don't know too much about. So I want to kind of talk about the science behind it and just give you a little mo- bit of time to kind of explain how you came up with you know your training aids and and what makes you know what what makes them work and and I'll. I'll tell people on here I've heard really good things about everybody I know that's using your train aids has been very happy with them so it's just one more uh, you know I'm not endorsing anything it's just one more option as a handler 
if uh, you want to have something that you can keep in your car all the time without having to go to the magazine and you can have it out, you know, if you say work at a state capital and you can have it out there and it's safe to have there while business is going on, you don't have to worry about, you know, things disappearing. I think this is an excellent option. So if you could kind of just explain your whole uh, training aid stuff, I think it'd be great. On the, on the explosive side, we, um, we render the energetic materials uh, non-dental. And I know that sounds, that, that's probably the hardest concept to grasp is oh, how can it be an explosive and then not explode? And what we do is take advantage of detonation physics. And so for an explosive to explode, it has to meet a number of different criteria for that sustainable uh, energetic reaction to take place. And if you break that chain of events, it just can't explode. Um, so what we do is we pulverize um, explosives, propellant oxidizers, and then we infuse that into uh, a cellulose medium, which then acts as a cushion, uh, basically like a sponge, and it separates particles, but ultimately it is the real stuff. Uh, it just is not in a form that allows it to explode. Um, so it, it's, it's, a, it's as pure as we can get it. In terms of, um, uh, we focus on things like instead of running your dog on C4, run your dog on RDX. And the reason for that is the energetic component in C4 is RDX. But RDX is also found in things like copy and Simtex and, you know, there are a number yeah. of different. So if that is the key energetic component, focus on that. Run your dog on the other things. But if you focus on RDX, your dog will find the other stuff a lot more easily. Uh, likewise with PETN and nitroglycerin and the oxidizers and so forth. So what we've done, we just have a a, a disc with some cute paw prints cut out of it, out of it, and a, a rare earth magnet. They're inexpensive. They come packaged in two metallized mylar bags, and we do that for two reasons. One, the metallized mylar is inorganic, just like. Um, if you're storing pickles in the refrigerator, it'll be in a glass jar with a metal lid. Those are inorganics, and that, that smell can't get out. Uh, the other thing is that it reduces the amount of air that's around the training aid. And it's that air that allows things to decompose or to off-gas. And so having a, a smaller package and an inorganic container increases the shelf life. Um, keeps it from cross-contaminating with other odors. So that's, the, that's our product in a nutshell. It's the real thing. It um, in bulk, these things will definitely explode, but in this particular form factor, it does not meet the definition of an explosive for uh, ATF or for DOT. So you can transport it, you can store it in your car- cargo pocket, your uh, love box, wherever you want, and uh, you don't have to worry about any hazards. And nobody likes to be out. Yeah. Uh, some money for a training aid, but it's a whole lot different than calling up ATF saying, Hey, I left a, a demo yeah. 12. <laughs> what, what is the shelf life of the training aids? About a year, depending on how you handle it. One of the things we talk about in our class is we really stress things like chemical hygiene. So being able to package your explosives so that they don't, it maximizes shelf life, but they also don't cross contaminate. Please use gloves. So if you're doing all those things, then you'll easily get a year out of it. And the, the, the year, uh, date is it's not so much that the odor has gone away it's that you probably added to the odor so if you're yeah. really good about uh, chemical hygiene and handling your your training aids you'll get more than a year out of it but that's generally what we say 
And what all odors do you have for the bomb side? Just about anything you want. <laughs> so, yeah. It's a long list, but what okay. we try it's a, what we try to focus on are some key odors. So if you know your dog knows RDX, PETN, TNT, and nitroglycerin, you're going to cover basically all of the high explosives that are used in the military and commercially. Yeah. If you add ammonium nitrate, most commercial explosives are ammonium nitrate based. Um, so ammonium nitrate, potassium chlorate, potassium nitrate, like we talked about with um, black powder and then the two smoke powders. We also have the peroxides, TATP and HMTD. And yes, it's real TATP, real HMTD. Um, and we have, if you're going overseas, we recommend getting urea nitrate. Okay. But that's basically it. And with the TATP, um, it's also obviously safe. Um, I want to just touch base real quick. As a, from what you see and what you've seen overseas, is TATP usually just the initiator, or have you seen it a lot of times? Is it the primary explosive part of the bomb? So mostly HMTD and TATP are used in the, the detonator. Um, so oftentimes, unless somebody is working like in a university setting where, you know, kids like to get on YouTube and make explosives and that kind of stuff, or you have uh, a group of people that have gotten into TATP and HMTD for fun, but what, for whatever reason that, that mm-hmm. is, I don't recommend that you work your dog on either of those two because it's usually going to be made into the detonator. and That detonator is going to be put in a main charge that your dog is already imprinted on. And the reason why we say that is uh, we'd love for you to buy our products. However, if you don't buy our products, it's very difficult for you to get a hold of HMTD yeah. and people start to stress over that. So we just try to keep it practical in that um, it, it's not that big of a deal. Now that said, there have been people who've used TATP as a main charge and it can be desensitized. Um, there have been people who've used HMTD as a, as a main charge. So it's not outside the realm of possibility. Okay. okay. Just very rare. Okay. If you're working in Israel, you absolutely need to work on TATP sure. because they're very good at desensitizing it and making it into a sec- a main charge. Okay. So, so if they're doing it there, it'll probably end up here at some point. If they figure out how to desensitize it, then that's going to be a problem because it's very easy to make and uh, um, you'll have all the right components. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think those are all good things. Uh, what's your website if people want to look at your, your train aids? It's uh, P-R-E, pre-exp, so precision explosives, uh, .com. P-R-E-exp.com. And you can check us out on Facebook uh, under Precision Explosives. My wife, Christy, does a really good job of posting fun stuff. We don't take ourselves too seriously and like to poke fun at ourselves. <laughs> well, good. I know that you're doing a lot of good stuff. And like I said, I, I'm excited to, uh, so far, I, I haven't uh, used your products. I'm getting ready to train a dog for another agency now that I've retired. And I'm planning on, uh, I'll probably imprint them all on those. Because I think, in my mind, it's, you know, using real explosives, using your products the way that they're contained, using uh, you know, pseudo explosives. I think they all have a value in a place. And what the last question I'd have about your products is, um, if I use like one of the one 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 single of the training aids, do you have any way to quantify what that would be? The same weight wise, is it you know the same as a pound of of whatever that product is, or is it kind of hard to to quantify that? Great question. So what? We- 
<clears throat> what we look at is the surface area, and that's probably the most important thing. I know in everybody's training records, they have weights. Yeah. Also, you may want to take note of surface area. So, for example, uh, with our product, we have a, a mini odor print, which is probably about a quarter of a pound, maybe less. And then we have a regular size of print, and that's about half a pound. And that's all based on available surface area. But that's the, the key aspect of that is um, if we were to take something like uh, cellophane and wrap it around a, a block of C4, and we take the amount of surface area that we've now measured, and we translate that to an odor print, that's how we derive the, the half pound. But the thing I'm, uh, the, the important takeaway about surface area is it all relates to thresholds. So, for example, I may have a pipe bomb that has a pound or two of, of powder in it, but the amount of available odor is based on the, that little hole where the fusing is going to go in. That's not a whole lot of available odor. So getting that threshold down really low is pretty important. Same sure. thing with pressure. There's only one little small valve. And that's one of the things that we're proud of with our products is that it forces your dog to start to accept a much lower threshold than just putting out a quart can full of, you know, whatever that your odor is. Sure. And I think that's important. And I think also going and like we have a, a area here that uh, they bake powders and stuff and they'll put out uh, an entire semi full of ammonium nitrate for us. So I think working both ends of that are obviously important because you get different, uh, different reads on them, but um, absolutely. Well, it's a lot of good information and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you at hits this year, Scottsdale, Arizona in August. Uh, you'll be there. You'll have a booth there so people can put their hands on this, stand there and talk to you. You have a whole lot more information than I'm able to get out, you know, in a 30 minute podcast. So the class will be good. And then, like I said, you'll be at your booth for several days so if uh, you're interested in really picking Todd's brain uh, it's, it's well worth coming and uh, seeing his class and just spend a little time talking to him at his booth because there's a, there's a whole lot more more than I can get out just in this time so I appreciate you taking the time today Todd and uh, we will see you very soon thank you very much for the opportunity well that's going to do it for this episode of Hits Canine Radio I hope you enjoyed it I think Todd has a lot of really good information for bomb dog handlers so if you're a bomb dog handler and you want to see the whole class that uh, todd's going to teach that'll be at hits in august and we're going to be in scottsdale which is a phoenix suburb so information on hits to see all the different instructors we have uh, it, uh, instructors for every type of dog training you can imagine if you uh, work any type of police dog we'll be able to keep you busy for all, the, all three days of hits a lot of these seminars that are going on out there that are um, i'll just say doing similar to what we do they uh, have two days of classes, and HITS has always been three days, three full days of classes. We'll have uh, five classes to pick from um, all day long, so you can pick and choose the classes you want and tailor it made to exactly the seminar that you want for, based on your situation. So Todd's uh, one of many of the instructors that will be there, and uh, like I mentioned in the podcast, he'll be at his booth. We have uh, 100 vendors there, so the largest vendor hall of any canine conference you're ever going to see. Pretty much every product and every uh, all the major dog kennels will be there. Lots of cars to look at, see what uh, what you want to see. If you can get your uh, admin to buy a different car for you, you can at least tell them you've had hands-on and, and can talk about the features of all the different uh, cars and kennels and different uh, dog vendors plus all the equipment. So hits k9.net for all the information on hits that's uh, coming up in August. It's uh, 
the, the largest canine conference there is. We're expecting well over a thousand people like usual. So should be a great time. Uh, it's canine.net. Uh, this year, for uh, some of the listeners that are not law enforcement, we have added in before hits uh, our smart dog smart dog training conference. So if you're not law enforcement, but you train a dog for search and rescue or some of the other private sector dog trainers, or you do nose work or any of those things that that doesn't fit into our our law enforcement only part of hits, we do have uh, our smart dog training seminar. So that uh, website is smartdogtraining.net. I'm sorry, it's mysmartdog.net. Mysmartdog.net. You can check out everything going on there. Lots of uh, instructors there. It'll be a great event. It's the first one we've done like that. So quite a few of the vendors will be uh, coming in early for the smart dog training. So mysmartdog.net. And as always, if you uh, have any feedback or questions or have a topic you want to uh, discuss or reach out to me about maybe doing a class or something in your area, just to email me, jeff at hitsk9.net. So thanks, everybody. I appreciate you listening.